And just as a bride separates herself to be chaste and pure and to give herself just to one man as he is to do the same, so when we are born again, we are to separate ourselves from the sinful desires of this world and to give ourselves exclusively to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you adopt the value system of the world, you are committing spiritual adultery. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in our series titled Combating Worldliness. Pastor Carl reminds us that we cannot come to God with a divided heart. We have looked at the cause and consequences of worldliness, and today we will examine the cure for worldliness. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues his lesson in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Now, when we say people are worldly-minded, it's critical that we differentiate between the worldly value system that Satan is energizing as the God of this world from the people of this world. And there's a difference. Let me illustrate. Go to Mark's gospel, Matthew, Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament. Go to Mark chapter 2 for just a moment. Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, let me set the stage here for you. It really unfolds in three scenes. In Mark chapter 2, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus comes to this man, Levi, who is a tax collector. He's also known as Matthew in the Bible. Many Jews had double names, and this man is Levi or Matthew. We're talking about the same person. And as a tax collector, he was not considered, quote-unquote, one of the beautiful people of the day. They were hated. They were rip-off artists. They were despised. And Jesus comes to Levi, and he says, follow me. And he drops his cash register. He leaves everything, and he follows the Lord Jesus. Then we come to scene two in verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, in Levi's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. So here's the Lord Jesus who knew no sin, who did not sin, and in whom was no sin, and he's dining with tax collectors and sinners. It's a beautiful picture. And if you don't find that beautiful, there's something wrong with you. It tells me your heart is a million miles away from the Lord. Now, notice scene three where I want to give, us, give the focus. Verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? The point is clear. Since he's eating and drinking with tax collectors, that is sinners, ipso factor, he himself must be a sinner and he cannot be considered a man of God. Verse 17, in hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Please understand a very important principle, and it is that what Jesus was determined where Jesus was. What Jesus was determined where Jesus was. What is Jesus? He's a physician, He's the Savior. Where does a physician spend his time? 
With sick people. Where does the Savior spend his time? With sinners. Now let me ask you, where do you spend your time? Do you find the lost people of this world with, like they're infectious? Like they've got cooties? Like they're dirty? If that's the way you feel, you're not like Christ. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You see, in the New Testament, there's a huge difference between separation from sin and separation from sinners. And we live in a day where more and more we do not separate ourselves from sin. We live much like them. A woman not long ago came to join Community Bible Church. And I said, well, how did you get here? She said, well, I had some problems in the church I came from. My ears kind of perked up like, are we bringing on another problem person? I said, well, what were the problems? She said, well, you know, I go to these Bible studies and people are drinking. And some of them, after the Bible studies, they're sleeping together. And I go to church, and it's just like a rock concert. He's, she said, it's one of these secret-sensitive churches. And when I would call some of these behaviors into question, they said I was judgmental. And so I came here, and I heard the word preached, and that God has such thing as absolutes. Listen, when you have an encounter with the grace of God, it changes everything. It's the false teacher, the book of Jude says, that turns the grace of God into sensuality. Paul says, for the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Christ came and he died for all men, but it teaches or instructs us who've received that grace to do what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. By the way, there are three kinds of patients that Christ could never heal. First, those who don't, do not know him, those who've never heard about him. He can't heal them. How will they call upon him in whom they have not heard? So we are commanded to go and tell. Are you going and telling? Look, if you want to raise spirit-filled children and you're not going and telling, you're not going to do it because that means you're not a spirit-filled person. Your children ought to see some priorities and some things that are important to you. And among things that are important, as Jesus said, follow me and you'll be a fisher of man. Secondly, there are those who, who know about him but refuse to trust him. Why? Because they love the darkness more than they love the light. And third, there are those who will not admit their need for him. Why? Because like the Pharisees, they think they're okay. They're righteous. When Jesus said, I don't come to save those who are righteous, he was not implying that some are righteous and they therefore don't need a Savior. He's just underscoring that some people think they are righteous when in reality the ground is level and we are sinners. And unless we admit we are sinners deserving the judgment of God, Christ can never, ever save us. We must come as bankrupt people, unable to earn this incredible salvation. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now back here to James chapter 4. When the Apostle James speaks of friendship with the world, he's talking about separation from sin, not separation from sinners. Look again in verse 4. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
That is some really strong language. He refers to worldly Christians being in a state of hostility towards God, that such a person is choosing to make himself an enemy of God, that friendship with the world is likened to adultery. You see, when you become a Christian, you became, in God's eyes, a member of the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. He is the heavenly bridegroom. And just as a bride separates herself to be chaste and pure and to give herself just to one man as he is to do the same, so when we are born again, we are to separate ourselves from the sinful desires of this world and to give ourselves exclusively to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you adopt the value system of the world, you are committing spiritual adultery. Now, don't forget the context. We're talking about unasked prayer in verse 2 and unanswered prayer in verse 3. And the two consequences uh, or the two sources that root this is worldly living, spiritual adultery. Let's suppose living here in our town is a man named John who's married to a young woman named Sally. And they marry one another. They stand at the marriage altar. They say, I commit myself to you in sickness and in health, in poverty and wealth, to give myself to you and you alone, to no one else until death separates us or Christ returns. Then suppose after they make that commitment, three or four years go down the road, and they're arguing. They're not getting along, and walls begin to build up. Before you know it, along comes Bill. And Bill is sensitive, and he listens to her. And before you know it, she's emotionally attached, and before you know it, they're in an adulterous relationship. So Sally comes to her husband, John, and says, John, I have some things I need. Bill and I want to go to spend the weekend together in Atlanta. I need the credit card, I need $300 cash, and I need the keys to the car. Do you think he's going to underwrite and subsidize her adultery? Not on your life. That's James's point. When we come with a divided heart to the living God, we are asking him to underwrite our spiritual adultery, and he's not interested. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? When you are in love with the world and you come to God, give me this or give me that, though it may be a legitimate need. It's asked from a divided heart, and God's not interested. Now, James is not done yet. Having given us the cause of worldliness and the consequences of worldliness, now he gives us the cure for worldliness. Like a good doctor, the Apostle James not only analyzes the problem, now he prescribes the cure. Look, if you will, now at verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit, which he has made to dwell in us. Maybe the more literal reading out in the margin of the NASB would be helpful to you. If you look at the marginal reading, you would render it, the Spirit, which He has made to dwell in us, jealously desires us. Now, if you've been saved, God the Holy Spirit desires you. The new King James says He yearns you. The old King James says He lusteth you. 
Lust, remember, is a neutral term. Sometimes it's used positively, sometimes negatively. It depends on the the context. He doesn't want the world to fill you. The Spirit of God desires you. He jealously desires you. He yearns to fill you and to empower you. Again, that may sound odd to us that the Spirit of God is jealous, but just as there is an unrighteous anger and a righteous anger, there can be an unrighteous jealousy and a righteous jealousy. And so God himself refers to himself as a jealous God. And the Ten Commandments, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In Exodus 32, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. It simply means that God is intolerant of rivals. He wants to have first place in your life. He wants preeminence in your life. He doesn't want any competition. And the Spirit jealously warns us that that's what He wants for you as well as the third member of the Godhead. So notice, He anticipates what someone might think. Someone says, well, all the powers of the world, the flesh, you know, it's everywhere, sin is everywhere, I go to work. They're talking about this illicit relationship, this night at the bar, this, that, the latest filthy movie. It's just everywhere, I can't help myself. It's overwhelming. So he anticipates that, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here in verse 6, it says, God gives greater grace. That is, greater than the pull of the world is not only the saving grace of God, but the sanctifying grace, the greater grace of God. And then in verses 7 through 10, he gives a series of commands that are not unrelated to the context. You might want to circle the last word of verse 6 and the first word of verse 10. Verse 10, humble, circle that word as well. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so sandwiched between those two words, between verses 6 and 10, are a series of five commands that describe the process of a believer experiencing the greater grace of God through humility. First, worldliness is countered by submitting to God. Worldliness is countered by submitting to God. That's the first command, submit. Notice how verse 7 begins. Submit, therefore, to God. When I submit to God, I give up my own personal desires and lusts, which is the cause of conflicts and quarrels. I say, I give up. I will not assert my way any longer. By the way, this command parallels Romans 12 and verse 1, where it says we are to present ourselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice. Of course, he's not talking about an animal, because that would be a contradiction of terms, because an animal that is sacrificed is dead. He's describing a human, a living sacrifice, someone who keeps on habitually submitting to the living God, and that is the key to answered prayer. Prayer is not trying to get God's will to fit in with yours. It's you trying to fit in with God's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mankind first got into trouble in the Garden of Eden when the first Adam said, not your will, but my will be done. But thank God for the second Adam who in Gethsemane said, not my will, 
but your will be done. So first, submission. Worldliness is countered by submitting to God. The second command is found in verse 7. Worldliness is countered by resisting the devil. It's countered by resisting the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Have you ever thought about the devil fleeing from you? For most of us, that's a ridiculous idea. If we can just get him to leave us alone for a little bit, we would be happy. But the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, please understand the order is significant. God first tells us to submit, then he tells us to resist. And there are all kinds of Christians who are trying to resist the devil, even quoting scripture, but they live in defeat. There's no victory because they have not first submitted and there's some area, some corner of their life that they're holding on to, and there's not total submission to the Lord. And so Satan says, I'm not going to flee. I am not going to flee because you've got some unyielded territory, and I'm taking it. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. The third part of this cure is worldliness is countered by drawing near to God. It's countered by drawing near to God. Look now, if you will, at verse 8, and notice how it instructs us. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, this is the positive side of resisting the devil. And when you relish your relationship with God so much, like David in Psalm 27, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Again, in the same breath, he says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. This is a deliberate action on the part of the believer to draw close to God. And let me say to you this morning, if God once seemed close to you and today he seems distant, guess who moved? It was not him. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Many years ago, my youngest son, Jameson, he was just five. He was small. I was laying in the bed with an open Bible, working on a passage, and I said, Jameson, what are you doing in here? I already told you to get in bed. You know, we've already gone through all the hoops, you know, water and this and that. And what, what are you doing in here? He said, Daddy, I just wanted to be close to you. I married him yesterday, hard to believe. I just want to get in the bed with you and under the covers and be near you and mom. I don't know what kind of a daddy you grew up with. I reached down, pulled him up. He said, Daddy, can I stay here until I fall asleep? I said, you can. I don't know what kind of a dad you had. But we have a heavenly father who wants to be close to you. And if he's not close to you, it's because you are in spiritual adultery. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Guaranteed. Fourth, worldliness is countered by clean hands and a pure heart. By clean hands and a pure heart. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Your hands, your hearts in Scripture symbolize the whole person, the actions of the body as well as the thoughts of the mind. And James is telling us that we cannot come to God with dirty hands. We cannot come to God with a divided heart. For whoever wishes to be a 
friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It is true that when God saves you, he saves you not just for heaven, but to sanctify you, to begin the shaping process so that while you are here on earth, you become an effective ambassador for Jesus Christ. And when you let go of the world and you hold on to him with both hands, you begin to see the greater grace of God. Jeremiah records a promise from the Lord. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God doesn't like double-mindedness. He doesn't like half-heartedness. It is disgusting to him. James has already addressed the primary reason our prayers do not get answered. Like the psalmist, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. We say, oh, Lord, I want such and such. I want you to do so and so. And God says, I'm not listening. He doesn't say, if you sin, I will not hear, for we all stumble in many ways. We've already read that in this epistle. But if I cling to, if I hold on to, if I cherish sin, iniquity in my heart, God doesn't hear. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Fifth and finally, worldliness is countered by a brokenness over sin. It's countered by a brokenness over sin. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your gloom, your joy to gloom. He's speaking here of a godly sorrow that leads to real repentance. He is speaking of a, a godly sorrow that wants to bring about real change. He's not talking about the tears of a criminal in front of a judge. He's not talking about some politician or preacher who got caught on tape. He's not talking about crocodile tears and the consequences that bad choices in bad sinful deeds have brought. He's talking about someone who's broken over their sin. And he wants us to know that we need to deal with sin in a serious fashion. He is saying that if you're a friend of the world, then you need to grieve over it. Surely that's not what God has in mind, is it? I mean, we're supposed to get up in the morning and claim our victory and our happy thoughts and claim the healing from the Lord. That's what Pastor Joel would tell you. No, God says you're to be broken over your sin. You're to grieve over it. What bothers you? When was the last time you were broken over some sin in your life? I'm not saying that you shouldn't have joy or laughter. He's not saying that, but he's simply saying that if you're worldly as a believer and you don't deal with sin in a serious way, then you can never, ever, ever get serious with God. And so he concludes, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. You know, sometimes we pray, oh God, humble me. And I suppose God might answer that prayer, maybe not in the ways we would prefer, but understand, this is not a prayer request. This is a command. This is not something God does to you. This is something you do before God. Humble yourself. It's an imperative. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And if we're not willing to do that, God has a way of giving us a Nebuchadnezzar complex. Remember when we studied Daniel? He went on, look at all that I've done. Look at my great kingdom. And God said, why don't you try eating straw for a while and come down to earth? And God can humble us. 
James is giving us a prescription, a cure for infighting, whether it's in your home, whether it's in the local assembly, for wars, for battles that sever churches, that break families apart. He's telling us we need to address the problem of worldliness. We need to see it for what God says it is, spiritual adultery. Now, if you've never met Christ, you can't even begin to that process of becoming more like him until you're born from above. You can't be born from above until you're willing to own your sin, call it what it is, change your mind about it, that is, say what God says about it, that it's wrong, it invites the wrath of God, and you flee to the one who is the great physician, not only analyzed the problem, he provided a cure, and he paid for the cure in full with his own precious blood. Come to him today, and he will receive you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, wherever you may be. Maybe you're here and you've never received Christ, you're not sure if you died in the next minute that heaven is really your home. You think, I hope it is, maybe it is, but I don't really know. Well, God asks you to come in faith. He asks you to believe that what he did on the cross of Calvary and having raised his son from the dead is sufficient to save you. But you must take God at his word. That's the nature of faith. And God cannot lie. And he promises whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. Speaking of Jesus, you call on Jesus' name and he said, I will instantly and forever save you. Would you do that? No one can do it for you. Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me? Father, we know we live in an age where some Christians... They have just been more shaped by the world in these days than they have by the Word of God. And then there are some who think they're just a worldly Christian, and the problem is they've never been converted. They've never shown any of the marks of new life in Christ. But many have slowed that process. As I have been opening your Word, you've been opening hearts. And you've put your finger on things in our lives that you want to change, that we might go further and represent the Lord Jesus as a more effective ambassador. I don't know where some people are at today, but I know, Father, that this could be the first day of the rest of their lives. But I don't want them to come to the end of their life having lived decades and a compromised life only to discover that they wasted it. One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for the Lord Jesus will last. Help us to live for him. He is worthy of everything. We ask it, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. As Pastor Carl pointed out, We need to deal with sin in a serious way. Worldliness is countered by clean hands and a pure heart. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 009. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling 
or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.